0: Ukrainian officials and residents remain concerned about potential dangers of a Russian attack on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant.
1: situation remains extremely difficult here, and uh, in Ukraine, everyone is extremely concerned about it.
0: Plus, an award-winning Ukrainian writer has died from injuries suffered in a Russian missile attack last week on a popular pizza cafe. Amelina was among at least a dozen people who were killed in the attack
2: which occurred around dinner time when the restaurant was usually busy.
0: And later in the program, a Ukrainian restaurant in Tokyo is feeding the hearts and stomachs of those who sought refuge in Japan. Today is Monday, July 3rd. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Lori London in Washington. Ukrainian officials, as well as residents living near the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, remain extremely concerned about a potential Russian attack or accidental incident that could have catastrophic and dangerous implications. It comes as Ukraine's counteroffensive, now in its early stages, is expected to intensify. Anna Chernikova in Kiev provided an update. It sounds from what we're hearing, especially even from American analysts, that it's going to be brutal. It's going to be bloody. What updates can you give us on the current counteroffensive?
1: The latest updates uh, that we have from the official Ukrainian sources, particularly from the Deputy Minister of Defense of Ukraine, confirmed that Ukrainian forces continue battles along the front line. And these battles are extremely difficult and extremely bloody, as, as you correctly put it. And the battlefield is basically quite wide. The main battlefield is currently around Bakhmut area, in the east, in the other parts of the eastern front line, as well as in the southern front line. And also the Institute for the Study of War confirmed that Ukrainian forces actually continue this counteroffensive actions and they have certain success and certain advance. The same information is coming from the Ukrainian official sources. So in general, we can say that Ukrainian forces are moving forward, and uh, some movements are more successful, some movements are less successful, but in general, uh, most of the frontline Ukrainian forces are are having the advance. In some areas, they keep defending positions. This basically comes all together as one piece of this counteroffensive operation.
0: And I know the the concerns are still very, very high for a potential attack on the Zaporizhian nuclear power plants. Are there any updates there? Situation remains
1: extremely difficult here and uh, in Ukraine everyone is extremely concerned about it. For the moment I can only tell there is an update from the Ukrainian mayor of the city of Anarhodar where the plant is located. We cannot verify this information independently. We can only state what he officially said. He said that Russian forces evacuated certain amount of workers of the nuclear power plant who signed contracts with Ross Atom, the Russian operation company that is currently controlling the plant. And he said that up to 100 workers were evacuated at the end of last week. But again, a lot of Ukrainian workers who didn't sign the contract, they remain in the city of Anarhadar and they are not allowed to leave. And he says that this is the way Russian forces are trying to keep these people in a captivity, basically, in this area. So, of course, Um, Again, we cannot verify this information, but if such things are happening, of course, this uh, creates additional concerns, especially here in Ukraine, because people are seeing such movements as possible preparation for a possible, you know, terroristic act or, or something like that. Very
0: worrisome. President Zelensky, he was in Odessa Sunday, marking the day of the naval forces of Ukraine. And I understand he talked a lot about the safety in the Black Sea.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, he met with the head of the naval forces of of the Ukrainian armed forces and informed that uh, the main discussion was about the safety in the Black Sea as well as the safety of the Azov coastline additionally. But of course the main concern for the moment remains in the Black Sea. He had conversation with top uh, navy officials of Ukraine marking their professional day. Also he informed that the situation is under control and that it would be be, as he said, according to him, that it is quite difficult and worrying for Russian sheep to get to the Ukrainian coast of the Black Sea. So this is what we know from his visit on Sunday.
0: Anna Chernikova reporting for VOA from Kiev. A prize-winning Ukrainian writer has died from last week's deadly Russian missile attack on a popular pizza restaurant frequented by journalists and aid workers in eastern Ukraine. Associated Press correspondent Karen Shamus reports. The literature and
2: human rights organization, PEN America, confirmed the death of Victoria Amelina, who died from her injuries after the strike in the city of Kramatorsk on June 27. Amelina was among at least a dozen people who were killed in the attack, which occurred around dinner time, when the restaurant was usually busy. Amelina published her first novel, The November Syndrome, or Homo Compatians, which was shortlisted for the Ukrainian Valery Shevchuk Prize. She was 37 years old.
0: I'm Karen Chamas. Leaders in the U.S. and across Europe continue to watch what will happen internally with Russia following the recent short-lived revolt by the Wagner Mercenary Group. For analysis on the significance of what happened and potential implications of Vladimir Putin's grip on power, VOA's Carol Castiel spoke in depth with Mark Katz, professor of Russian and Eurasian studies at George Mason University, and Maria Snagovaya, senior fellow in Russian studies at the Center for Strategic and International national studies
3: Maria Snigovaya let me begin with you most analysts have said that this attempted mutiny by the Wagner group and its leader Yevgeny Prigozhin has had the effect of weakening Vladimir Putin and his grip on power i mean let's face it for months he had been that is prigozhin carrying out public spats with the leadership of Russia's military forces. He was undermining Putin's official justifications for the war. And yet it appears that Moscow was taken by surprise by this attempted mutiny. First of all, how do you see this whole attempt by Prigozhin and the effect on Putin?
4: Yeah, I certainly agree with this conclusion that the mutiny has exposed unexpectedly somewhat of radical weaknesses within the Putin system. Well, the very fact that an armed the battalion can march all the way within 120 miles of russia's capital without hardly facing any resistance. Certainly, it shows that Putin is not completely in control of his power vertical, something that has been frankly, one of Putin's key points since the start of his career as Russia's president. Having said that, we don't really understand, and it's important, I think, to keep in mind the informational limitations that we've got at the moment. We don't really understand very clearly what the reasons that prompted Prigozhin to do what he's done and what he was trying to achieve in the first place. Based on the that we've got at the moment. He had very serious tangents, disagreements with Russia's Ministry of Defense. And in particular, it had Sergei Shoigu. As a result, apparently, he wanted to make certain statement, a point, allegedly, he planned this mutiny ahead of time. But also, according to these multiple leaks that we've got, his original plan was exposed. He allegedly planned to capture Shoiku maybe, and then maybe make that statement. As a result, essentially, he had to improvise and the improvisation led him unexpectedly somewhat to expose these radical weaknesses within Putin's systems. Going forward, the fact that we now see that the Kremlin is hardly able to defend itself and the fact that at the moment when Putin faces such fundamental challenge... And threats, the elites, the closest circles to Putin remain silent and not at all eager to stand up to his defense and so are the security services and they keep waiting for orders that will come from the top. That actually shows that Putin is not in full control of his own country. And certainly going forward, that creates all sorts of incentives for all sorts of actors who are also quite resentful about Putin's 23 plus years rule and this war where Russia is not very successful, to say the least, certainly creates a lot of incentives for them to try and challenge Putin going forward. So this is just a beginning, I'd say, of what is going to be a very interesting development.
3: Turning to you, Professor Katz, a very interesting development in just the beginning of that, what would you like to add or supplement to what we learned from Maria Snegovaya with regard to Prigozhin's objective, the fact that it appears that this so-called mutiny definitely exposed a vulnerability in Putin's regime and his hold on power. And it seems to me that Prigozhin, at least in his own mind, and if we're taking him at his word, his intent
5: was not to overthrow Vladimir Putin, basically that that's new. Putin was against his rival in the defense ministry, whom Prigozhin has blamed for prosecuting the war in Ukraine poorly. And basically what he wanted to do was to get rid of Shoigu, get rid of the chief of the general staff, Gerasimov, and that he and Putin you know, would be able to work together. But also during the rebellion, Prigozhin made the statement that the whole justification for the war against Ukraine was incorrect, that Ukraine did not pose a threat to Russia, and that he gave Putin even a way out of it. In other words, that he blamed the greedy generals for this war. And if Putin had taken this up, it would have been a way out. Yes, I was fooled by these bad people, and now we can proceed along more reasonable lines. But Putin, of course, wouldn't do this. That for Putin, this war against Ukraine is something that I think is deeply, deeply important for him. He really does regard Ukraine as rightfully belonging to Russia, believes that Ukrainians are really Russians, and anyone who thinks differently is obviously a fascist. He cannot give up on this conflict, and I think that basically when it became clear that Putin was not going to go along with Prigozhin's efforts, then you know Prigozhin bowed out, and incredibly enough, you can rebel against the state and yet you can go off to Belarus in retirement, if you will. It's just remarkable, and I think as Maria pointed out, no one seemed to be willing to stop Prigozhin that he wasn't really challenged, and that this, I think, reveals an even greater problem.
0: Mark Katz, Professor of Russian and Eurasian Studies at George Mason University, along with Maria Snagovaya, Senior Fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, speaking with VOA's Carol Castiel. We'll hear more from that interview on tomorrow's program. Photos and reports suggest Belarus is creating an installation for Russia's Wagner Group fighters. Associated Press correspondent Charles de la Desma has that part of the story.
5: Satellite images analysed by the Associated Press show what appears to be a newly built military-style camp in Belarus, with statements from a Belarusian guerrilla group and officials suggesting it may be used to house fighters from the Wagner mercenary group. The images provided by Planet Labs suggest that dozens of tents have been erected within the past two weeks at a former military base outside Osipovichi a town 140 miles north of the Ukrainian border, the leader of an anti-Lukashenko guerrilla group said on Thursday the construction of a site for Wagner fighters was underway there. I'm Charles DeLuttezma.
0: Meanwhile, a social media troll factory owned by Russian mercenary Yevgeny Prigozhin to allegedly influence public opinion in the U.S. and other countries has reportedly been disbanded. It's the latest fallout from the stunning mutiny. Matthew Loratonda with Reuters reports.
6: The Kommersant, a Russian newspaper, is also reporting that the government's communications watchdog is blocking media outlets linked to Prigozhin, without elaborating. On Saturday, Reuters cameras spotted Wagner logos being removed from its corporate offices in St. Petersburg. The building was raided by authorities during the mutiny. It was opened only last year and dubbed a military technology center. The U.S. government and European Union have long accused Purgosian of funding an organization known as the Internet Research Agency, which Washington says is a troll farm that tried to meddle in the 2016 presidential election. Purgosian himself has previously admitted to interfering in U.S. elections and that he founded and financed the organization, although the Kremlin has always denied any interference. Separately, a media holding group owned by Prigozhin is said to have been shut down, according to the director of one of the news sites under its umbrella. It gave no reason for the move. The group, called Patriot Media, had a strong nationalist and pro-Kremlin stance that also provided positive coverage of Prigozhin and his mercenaries.
0: Matthew Tonda reporting from Reuters. At a news conference in Kyiv, Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez says Ukraine is at the top of Spain's agenda as it kicks off the EU presidency.
2: Ukraine is uh, fighting to recover the country against uh, an illegal and justified invasion, which uh, has already caused unnecessary suffering. Of course, we are closely monitoring the recent uh, internal events in Russia. But they don't change the situation on the ground here in Ukraine.
0: Sanchez says his attention is focused on Ukraine and won't be diverted by the internal crisis in Russia.
2: In the next uh, few months, uh, we will make progress on issues that are essential for the future of the European Union. Yet Ukraine is going to be at the center of all our debates. Uh, This is our first day at uh, at the job, and I wanted to dedicate it to send a strong message of support both from the European and the Spanish perspectives.
0: You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. We've been hearing for weeks about the bloody battle for Bakhmut and Ukraine's relentless determination in one of the places that has seen some of the fiercest fighting of Russia's war in Ukraine. I spoke with VOA Ukrainian Service Managing Editor Tatiana Vorosko, who has written a news story for voanews.com that profiles the rich history of Bakhmut and the people whose lives are forever changed with its destruction. What made you write about and focus on this particular city?
7: People have been hearing the word Bakhmut, the name of the city for the last several months, as a place of heavy fighting, as a place of key battle between Russia and Ukraine in this war. And they have been seeing this city being completely destroyed, laying in ruins. But I try to present... uh, to the people to show what kind of place it used to be, what it meant for Ukraine and what it meant for people who live there. I interviewed several former uh, re- residents of the city and tried to present this place from main angles. Uh, the one person I talked to, um, Ukrainian journalist, she lived in the city, she grew up in the city, but also her parents, her grandparents her great-grandparents. She was telling me how fertile the city for the generations to live there and how hard for people who have very long, very old roots in the city to be uprooted by Russia. I also talked to the local historian, uh, a guide who's very enthusiastic about the history of the city and presented uh, the history also relying on other historians. And in short, the city is one of the oldest in the east of Ukraine. It was uh, founded uh, by according by uh, one theory, it was founded by Zaporizhia Kazakhs as a fortress in the Zaporizhia Siege in the 1680s or 90s. And Siege was a semi-autonomous polity and protest states of Kazakhs, ancestors of modern U- Ukrainians. And according to our other version, it was also founded even uh, earlier as a border fortress by Mos- Moscovia authorities in uh, 1571 in the areas populated by Ukrainian ancestors. The city grew through the extraction of salt and trade. Uh, They have salt mines there, they are still operational. Uh, and it was destroyed after the Zaporizhzhia siege was destroyed uh, on the order of Catherine II of Russia its territories were incorporated into the Russian Empire starting in 1775 and the, uh, during the Russian Empire the city was a big cultural, spiritual and trade center and there were several Jewish there was a Jewish center there were several synagogues Orthodox cathedral Roman Catholic cathedral and uh, so on it was called Arteomovsk between 1924-2016 and, and it's also Place a part of the h- Jewish history because uh, during uh, World War II, uh, Nazi, which they occupied Ukraine, they occupied also the city. And um, there was one of the Holocaust events took place there uh, where about 3,000 people, residents of Bakhmut, most of them Jews, were uh, walled up alive in um, dolomite mines and they, they died there. So, the other angle of the story is the unique economy and unique feel of the city. I talked to uh, Sergey Maslychenko, who is a Kosovo's European. For a construction and development mission had, and he grew up in the city. Uh, he was telling me, you know, how different the city from other cities in the donetsk lugansk areas, which grew up uh, from uh, settlements around. Um, heavy metallurgical plants or heavy coal mines but the city grew up for trade and has very diverse economy it has a city center uh, there were many bakeries there were a sewing factory well-developed trade um they were light light industry like there was a, a factory was producing mining equipment but it also was a home to several institutions of higher education and research. There was a research facility. There was an old, a lot of old buildings preserved, and one of them was a music school, which was founded in 1903. And the kids were still going there; they were still learning there. Uh, he was telling me how well developed music education was. And it was one of his major um, childhood memory was a music school. And um, the fourth element of the story was Ukrainians of the city, as you know, many people in, uh, around the world know. A lot of people in Ukraine speak Russian, but but that was a part of, um, of the policy, russification policy of the fo- of the former Russian Empire and of the Soviet Union uh, Bakhmut was subjected to systemic forced russification, which was done through a change of the ethnic composition of the population, due to the arrival of workers from Russia, suppression of political and cultural Ukrainian life and the restrictions on the use of the Ukrainian language, and during the late uh, Russian Empire, these restrictions were pretty punitive So, but still still remained Ukrainian and one of the people I talked to, Sitlana Kravchenko, local activist, she was telling how her grand-grandparent wrote a letter to her back fiancé in a very beautiful Ukrainian language. And uh, the people I talked to, they're very proud of the fact that the very first uh, blue and yellow Ukrainian flag in the Donetsk region was uh, raised actually in Bakhmut uh, during the short-lived independent Ukrainian People's Republic, which was announced and uh, proclaimed in 1917. It was short-lived republic.
0: Of the people that you've spoken to, what do they say they hope to see? For the future of Bakhmut in the future?
7: Everyone hopes that the city will be restored. They understand that the city will not be restored in the same the same way as it, it used to be. Uh, Moslychenko, who works for BRD, the organization that plans to take an active part in the reconstruction, hopes to personally prof- participate in this for his profession. Uh, Svetlana Kravchenko is, is, wants to return as soon as possible. And the other person I talked to, Elizaveta Hanchirova, the journalist I mentioned in the beginning, she told me that, you know, though the city will not be restored exactly in the same way, it's actually in a sense fulfilled its mission. She said to me that the city was founded as a fortress to protect the borders, and so Bakhmut fulfilled this karmic mission. It did become a fortress.
0: VOA Ukrainian Service managing editor Tatiana Vorosko. Visit voanews.com to read the entire compelling story. And finally, today, a Japanese actor, artist, and designer has opened a Ukrainian restaurant in Tokyo. Her one and only goal, to provide jobs to Ukrainian evacuees arriving in Japan after the start of Russia's invasion. Lulia Larmolenko has the story. Tokyo's restaurant scene
2: offers food from around the world. But it wasn't until 2022 that Japan's capital saw the opening of a Ukrainian restaurant. Called Smachnoho or Bon Appétit, it serves Ukrainian food with a Japanese twist. In Ukrainian, it's holubits, but here we call it Rerikabitsu, a cabbage roll. We make it with ground meat mixed with rice and tomato sauce on top. It's one of the most popular dishes here. Another popular choice is a Ukrainian-Japanese lunch plate that comes with potato and mushroom vareniki, chicken Kiev, among other things, but always with borsh. Japanese actor, artist and designer Takana Ezoya founded Smachnoho in September 2022. Before Russia's invasion, she didn't know much about Ukrainian food. At first, I knew nothing about Ukrainian cuisine. But I consulted with a professional chef and decided to open a restaurant. For many locals, Ukrainian cuisine is something exotic.
5: I had no experience for Ukrainian food, yeah. just be, before, before this war. Yeah. Yeah. We all understand just it, a kind of Russian food. But here, this is the first time I came and enjoyed the Ukrainian food, especially for both city, It's very tasty. <laughs>
2: As says, the real purpose of the restaurant is to employ Ukrainian evacuees. Irina Svidran, who came to Japan from Dnipro with her daughter's help, is happy to have a job here. You know, the Japanese welcomed us very warmly. I wasn't expecting it. And despite my age, Takane-san gave me a
3: job. And I can freely live here.
2: Natalia Gligolo came to Japan through a sponsorship from a friend. She says she doesn't regret her choice, but mostly she is grateful for the opportunity to work. I decided it's better to have a job here than be in Poland getting social benefits. When we were moving here, both my daughter and I already had a job. Here we got to meet the other ladies, and now we are like a small Ukrainian family. As Zoe says, achieving this family feel was the main goal of opening the restaurant. She says that making a profit is not what she wants, and when the war is over, she will close the restaurant. <coughs> Yura Yarmolenko for VOA News, Tokyo.
0: And that'll do it for us today, but stay up to date with continuing coverage on Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of the entire Flashpoint Ukraine team, thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London.
3: This is the voice of America Washington Bam DC.